morning. Good to be here with you. My name is Phil Adams. Um, I get to serve in the pastoral team here, teaching at uh, South Rogers Park and also over in West Rogers Park with Shine and Essie and Zore and Imi and Glam and lots of other good people. Um, but it's a joy uh, to be up here this morning and to preach God's word to you. We're in a series uh, looking at the I Am statements of Jesus that are scattered throughout the Gospel of John. So if you've got a Bible there, if you could just turn to John chapter 10, verses 11 to 15, we'll read. So John chapter 10, 11 to 15. If you've got one of the house Bibles, you can go to page 522. If you've got a house Bible, which you can get out the back door. Um, or if you put up your hand, one of our deacons maybe will run and get you one, but it's page 522. Otherwise, we're going to read in a few minutes from John chapter 10, verses 11 to 15. As you've seen, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, we've been working through these statements and they, and they build on each other and they paint a picture of who Jesus is and who Jesus is in relation to who we are um, and what we need. Last week, Shine looked at Jesus saying, I am the door of the sheep, that it's through Jesus that we, like sheep, find an entrance way to the pasture of eternal life. It is through Jesus that we, like sheep, find an entrance to acceptance before God. And this week, just so you know, you're still sheep, Okay. Two weeks of being sheep. Um, and, as, and Jesus, no, he no longer, though, speaks about um, being a door this week. We're still sheep, but he's no longer a door. He, he speaks about being our shepherd. He speaks about being our good shepherd this week. He speaks about being the good shepherd, the true, the real, the authentic shepherd that we need. So let's read from John chapter 10, verses 11 to 15. Say this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep's sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he does not care. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that we come together, God, as your people, as the church. And God, we come to your word where you have revealed yourself to us, God. We thank you so much for every one of these I am statements, God, so that we get to see a little bit more of who you are, God. So thank you for revealing yourself to us, God. Thank you that we can know you and we can know you intimately through Christ. So God, I pray that you will speak into our hearts today. May we be attentive to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I need you to do, like I said this morning, is feel like comfortable being sheep again. So if you just want to turn to the person beside you and say, I am a sheep. And then turn to the person the other side of you and say, you are a sheep. Very accusational, you are a sheep. There's nothing like a little bit of church awkwardness, you know. <laughs> but also, speaking about awkward positions and pictures, take a look at this picture. You see, this photo was taken, found, I should say, in, the, in a New York Times article, which was entitled, What is Going On in This Photo? And the article didn't say anything else. It had just a list of comments where people were to guess what's going on in the photo. And the circumstances in this photo are, are kind of simple in a sense, but basically the snow came down so fast that the sheep couldn't get out of the way. They had nowhere to go, and the sheep just 
stood there and then the snow fell and built up around them until the next day the farmer or the shepherd as you could say you can see he's got a staff by his feet came and had to come and try and find his sheep so he's in the snow trying to pull out some sheep or he's trying to pull out some lambs and it's a good demonstration this photo of the mind of a sheep (laughs) that sheep by their very nature need help they very easily get stuck In the fields, they are prone to getting lost, getting stuck, or as you can see in this one, being buried in the snow. Sheep get stuck. And the passage that we're looking at this morning in relation to us, it's not directly speaking about getting stuck in our lives due to unforeseen circumstances. It's about being abandoned. It's about being abandoned by the very people that are supposed to be there for us when we do get stuck. It's about being abandoned by the very people that should be there for us, that should be looking for us, that should be searching for us when we do get stuck. Parents, governments, friends, shepherds. Today is about nobody showing up in our lives when the snow falls or the wolves come. I was trying to think Preparing this, is there a difference between being abandoned and being rejected? And many of you know this morning that it's a fine line between being abandoned and being rejected. It's a fine line. One good thing to know when reading through the Gospels, like the Gospel of John, is that truth is often layered, not linear. Scientific minds usually like things that are linear. Truth statements that build logically on top of one another. Others are more comfortable with layered truth, truth found through pictures and metaphors that sometimes blur together to create something so beautiful it's hard to express. And the truth is that we need both, and God gives both in his word. But when I was studying this passage this week and the passage around this passage, I thought this is like a painting. This is like art. This is a masterpiece of visual imagery. I thought this is so beautiful. How do we handle it without killing it and dissecting it and pulling it all apart so it's no longer as beautiful as it is in one big piece? So I don't want to do that this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to back up to chapter 9 as well and include that in what we're speaking about this morning. And I want to tell that story and let the imagery speak for itself. Shine pointed out Something very helpful last week when he saw that chapter 9 and chapter 10 of John are one passage. They, they flow together. They stick together. They're one unit, you could say. So the first verse of chapter 9, it reads like this. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So just to set the scene, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the streets of Jerusalem and the disciples see this blind man who was blind from birth and he was a beggar and they leaned in to Jesus and they asked a question. And the question gives a glimpse into this blind man's life. Because the question they ask, they only presume that there is two possible answers. Either he is blind because of his own sin, he either brought it on himself Or his parents sinned and they caused their son to be blind. 
The question is a question of blame. The question is a question of shame. And the blame and the shame doesn't leave the family. The parents are just as questionable in regards to their sin as their son. In this society, they both look as guilty as the other. So what we find here is a family that are being gossiped about because of their struggles. A family that is being abandoned due to their circumstances. I wonder if they brought it on themselves. And then Jesus says, no, they didn't. It was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There is a purpose behind his blindness. There is a purpose behind his pain. He can't see so that everyone else will see something. That's why he's blind. And then Jesus displays his power over everything and he restores the man's sight. And I think it's so interesting if we look at the parents here. Because they show up a few times in this story in chapter 9. And the next time is when the religious leaders are trying to work out who healed the man. And if he really was healed. And they were really unhappy that where people were saying it was Jesus. Because Jesus was unsettling their position in society. He was unsettling the hierarchy where they got to be at the top and set the rules. So in verse 19 they ask the parents, is this, is this your son who, who you say was born blind? How does he now see? To which they strangely reply and say, we know this is our son, that he was born blind. But, but how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. Ask him. He, he's of age. He will speak for himself. And the reason this is kind of strange is that their son has been blind since birth. He has spent his life as a beggar. They have had to wear the shame of their son's situation, their lives, their whole lives. And now that he can see, they've got nothing to say. How come he can see? Don't know. Who, who healed him? Don't know. You better ask him. Then in the next verse, we get a little bit of a glimpse into the understand, into understanding what's going on in their minds. It says, his parents said these things, or they said nothing, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, they would be put out of the synagogues. The man's parents were staying quiet out of fear. His parents didn't want to say the name of Jesus. They couldn't handle further shame. They couldn't handle the further rejection. They couldn't handle being abandoned again. I feel for the parents. Because they have lived under this cloud of suspicion ever since their son was born. For all those years, people have gossiped about them, questioned their morality, questioned their standing before God. They'd lived lives under shame, and now their son was healed. And it had to be by the one doctor who would bring even further rejection into their lives if they were to associate with him. So they say, we know nothing. You better ask our son. He's old enough to speak for himself. Twice in chapter 9, the Pharisees go and they go and they talk to the son. The first time they go, they just get the raw facts. In verse 14 of chapter 9, it, it, he says, Jesus put mud on my eyes. I washed the mud off and now I see. 
Then in verse 24, the religious leaders go back to him and they want a little bit more information, asking the same questions, looking for something that would disprove the miracle or implicate Jesus to be a sinner. And after a short dialogue, the son answers, this, this is crazy. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opens my eyes. Think about it. And referring to God, listening to Jesus, he says, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Look, God listens to Jesus. And I love what he says next. Remember, this is the first day he has ever saw anything in his life. This is the first time he has spoken to people while seeing people. And I picture him going up and looking straight into the eyes of the religious leaders and saying, never since the world began has anybody heard of anyone who's opened the eyes of a man born blind. This doesn't happen. And if Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. To which they spitefully respond and they look him in the eye and say, you were born in utter sin. Who do you think you are teaching us? And they cast him out. When they said you were born in utter sin, that wasn't so much primarily a theological statement. That was primarily just hatred. Or just park words hurt. Words hurt. Our words to people's faces hurt, and our words behind people's backs hurt. I wonder how much more this man could take. I wonder how much more he could take of being abandoned by the very people that are supposed to be there for him. Years of begging, years of bringing shame on his family, and then the first day his eyes are opened, the first day he sees the faces of his parents, the first day of a hopeful new life, and his parents step back, and they disassociate themselves from him and say he can speak for himself. They don't stand with him. They don't stand beside him. And then the religious leaders abandon him. Those that were to care for the people and lead the people spiritually, those that were in place to teach and demonstrate who God is and all of his attributes, spitefully cast him out of the synagogue. You don't accept me when I'm blind. You don't accept me when I can see. Mom, Dad, speak for me. Stand with me. I didn't choose to be blind. I didn't choose who would heal me. Why am I abandoned again? Is it not your job to look after me? There's people in this room who can relate to this kind of rejection and abandonment. Feeling rejected, abandoned, abandoned by the very people that are supposed to be there for us. Some of you know what it's like to have a government turn on you when they should be protecting you. Some of us can relate very well to the blind man whose parents keep their distance when you'd love your parents to come and stand beside you. Some of us don't have parents since they walked away. Some of us know what it's like to be manipulated and abused by those in authority. Some of us have felt the pain of theological statements that were really just veiled hatred. Some of us are asking, why am I today abandoned again? We don't have to look far before we find shepherds of all kinds neglecting their sheep. 
We'd have to look far before we find shepherds not feeding their sheep. And it's not a new problem. Let me read from Ezekiel chapter 34. A passage that's finds, found deep in Jewish history. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so lean in and listen. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, lest says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, you have, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? Should not parents love their children? Should not governments protect their people? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and in every hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This sa thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land in which in rich pasture that they shall feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. The context of Ezekiel chapter 34 is written in a time when, in Jewish history, when Israel as a nation, they've been taken captive by Babylon and the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, have been neglecting their people. It says you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not found, your responsibility you've neglected. Then God says, behold, I am against the shepherds. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek them out. I will bring the back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. 
I just parked in John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. We see a micro level, a zoomed in version, a personal account of the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 34. It is no accident that during a story about rejection and abandonment, a story of a blind beggar and his parents, that we see Jesus step in and heal the sick, give sight to the blind and stand by the weak. It's no accident that just after this story, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. With the Greek word for good, meaning true, real, authentic shepherd. Should shepherds feed their sheep? Should parents care for their children? Should governments protect their people? Should those in authority respect those under them? Yes, but at times they won't. Yes, but at times they won't. And at times I will not. At times I will not protect those that I should. At times I will neglect responsibility and so will you. At times we won't be cared for and at times we won't care but Jesus says I am the true I am the real I am the authentic shepherd but Jesus doesn't stop there he says I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep And this is where we have to stay for a minute or sit for a minute because it's here in this image or in this image the picture of a of a shepherd starts to kind of break down. Because when we stop to think about it, shepherds shepherds do not lay down their lives for sheep. Yes, they they protect them, but they also know when to cut their losses. Shepherds mirror society. There's always an acceptable moment to give up on people and walk away. A good shepherd knows when to walk away or run away. A good shepherd knows when the cost to protect their sheep is too high. Because after all, there's a moment, there's more important things than sheep. When we talk about sheep in the Bible, usually what we bring out is that sheep are, are kind of dumb. They get lost easily. They get stuck in the snow. But what we don't really say is that sheep aren't even the priority. Sheep are a product. Sheep are pawns in the system. Sheep are to be bought. Sheep are to be sold. Sheep are used. Shepherds feed sheep to cut their wool. No matter how fluffy we make it, pardon the pun, we are talking about a transactional relationship. Both my grandfathers were farmers, and I've seen this. You, you care for your animals, you, you feed them, and you protect them, and then you sell them. And farmers have this strange ability to be attached to their animals, to even love them. But when the time is right, when the animal is sick or dying or broken, farmers have this strange detachment where a bullet in the head of their animal is something that they're able to shake off. Pawns in the system. Bought 
and sold, used, cut for wool. Shepherds do not lay down their lives for sheep. It's nice to think they do, but they don't. Even schools know at some point the worst students need to transfer out. Governments know at some point those at the bottom of society are too far gone. Parents know at some point it's acceptable to walk away. Shepherds know when the cost is too high, when the fight isn't worth it, when to walk away. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What does this mean? What does this look like? Because it's not normal shepherd behavior. Let's read again John 11, or John 10, verses 11 to 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I laid down my life for the sheep. These verses, they paint a vivid picture of, of a wolf attacking sheep. We have what is a hired hand protecting the sheep, a workman brought in to look after the sheep. But in verse 13, we see that this person doesn't really care about the sheep. So they, they are in the pasture. The sheep are grazing. Spring is coming. The higher hand is soaking up the sun when in the distance he sees a wolf coming, creeping. So he's got a choice to make. He sees two valid options. I can stay and fight or I can run. And he runs. He flees. He's got to get out of there. And he abandons the sheep to be snatched and scattered and killed by the wolf. And it's this little story that Jesus places himself within. He offers an alternative story. Something I want you to know is that in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, a shepherd is a symbol of kingship. That's where the idea of a royal staff comes from. Isaiah Newport helped me figure this out this week, wherever he is. It's the idea where a scepter comes from. This, the idea of shepherding over your people. So when we picture Jesus stepping into this story and into this pasture as the shepherd, he steps in as king. He steps in reigning and ruling. He isn't sunbathing. He's standing with authority and composure and control over his sheep whom he loves. And then he sees the wolf coming, creeping. And he's got a choice to make. He can stay and fight or he can run. He's got his staff. He reigns. He rules. He's king. Now listen, because he doesn't fight and he doesn't run. He goes out to his sheep and the Greek word that used to mean lay down means give up. He puts down his staff. He gets down on his knees. 
He sits in the grass. He relaxes his muscles. And he gives up. And in that moment, what the shepherd does is the shepherd becomes a sheep. The shepherd takes on the form of a sheep. The shepherd takes on the fighting ability of the sheep. The shepherd takes on the weakness of the sheep. And as the wolf creeps forward, the sheep that the wolf sets his sights on is the shepherd. The sheep that the wolf runs towards is the king with his staff in the mud. He doesn't fight and he doesn't run. He gives up. To which we say, why? Why? Oh, he must, he must have really loved his sheep. But they're just sheep. <laughs> We've established this already. Sheep get stuck. Who cares for sheep? Sheep are not the priority. They probably brought it on themselves. Why did Jesus care for sheep? Why does Jesus care for sheep? Why does he care for you? Why does he care for me? This is when we get into the profound. This is when we get into the incredible, the hard to express mystery of the gospel. Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the, as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. I know my sheep. And then we get this little Greek word, kathos, which means just as, identical to, just as. He says, I know my sheep just as the Father knows me. Jesus says, the way I know my sheep is the same as how my Father knows me. And what this means is incredible. What this means is that, listen to this, the sense of attachment and commitment that Jesus has towards his sheep is identical to the sense of attachment and commitment that God the Father has towards Christ himself. The sense of attachment and commitment that Jesus has towards his people is identical to the sense of attachment and commitment that God the Father has towards Christ himself. Listen to this word, commitment. Commitment. For eternity past, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been one. They have been committed to one another. They have never broke a promise to one another. They have never walked away from each other. They have never abandoned each other. The Trinity is, the, is unity personified. The Trinity is love personified. The Trinity is commitment personified. And Jesus is saying, out of the overflow of that relationship, out of the overflow of that commitment, just like, identical to how my Father knows me, I know my sheep. And nothing will break that commitment. Nothing can get in the way of that unity. Nothing can get in the way of that love. Nothing can get in the way, not even if it means giving up my life. I ain't running, I ain't walking. I ain't going anywhere. 
In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I won't lose any of what the God the Father has given me. God, give me a flock. God, give me a people. God, give me people in Chicago. God, give me people in Rogers Park. God, give me people in every tribe and tongue and nation, and I'm not losing one of them. This isn't like, I really love my dad, and then he gave me a car, and I really like the car. No, this is like, I really love my dad, and my dad gave me a gift, and I love my gift like I love my dad. I won't lose any of what the Father has given me. His honor depends on it. The glory of his name is at stake. God gave me a flock. God gave me a people, and I'm not losing one of them. Now here's the gospel, if we haven't already started. Jesus walked out onto that pasture, and he didn't pick a fight. He did the opposite. He laid down his life of his own accord. Because he knew that to give his people life, what they needed was a lamb. And they needed a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb that would take the wrath of God on their behalf. And the only perfect lamb was the king, so the king became a lamb. Jesus went to the cross. He cast aside his staff. He dropped to his knees, and he allowed the teeth of our sin to sink in. Isaiah 53, verse 4. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. The Lord laid on him the care that we hold back, all the responsibility that we neglect. And Jesus was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. But John 10, 18, speaking of his life, Jesus says, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. The king of the universe has the authority to give up his life, but he's the king. Death can't hold him. Back to life he came. He rose from the dead. And when he rose, his sheep were spotless, white as snow. Sin removed, dealt with, gone, and I forevermore, Jesus will always be our lamb. He will forever lead us and represent us. Revelation chapter 7, 17. The same John that we've been reading about had a vision of heaven when he saw, and he said this, the lamb in midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of eternal life. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of eternal life. Our shepherd is our lamb. And as a lamb, Jesus will forever identify with his sheep and be committed to his sheep. Just a few verses later, John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Listen to this word, commitment. Divinely inspired, eternally unbreakable commitment. The story of the blind man ends as beautifully as any story could. His parents have 
stood back. They're not beside him. He stood eye to eye with the religious leaders, and they've, they've cast him out. You don't accept me when I'm blind. You don't accept me when I can see. Why am I abandoned again? And then in verse 35, John 10, 35, Jesus heard that they had cast the man out, and Jesus went and found him. Having found him, Jesus said, do you believe in me? And the man said, Lord, King, I believe. Rogers Park, I want to assure you of this. If your story mirrors this blind man's, that you were blind and now you see, and now you say, Lord, King, I believe you've been found. Know that you've been found. Let me finish with this. On that pasture, Jesus went out and he didn't fight. He chose to put down his staff and then lay down his life because that is what we needed. And the honor of his father depended on it. But now he's never going to lie down again. There is not a pasture that Jesus will not step onto where he will not fight for his people. Where he will not fight for you. Your government might not. Your parents might not. People might not. But Jesus will and Jesus is. He's guiding in the unseen. He's providing what you need. He's preparing a heavenly home. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He will never sell you. He will never lose you. He will never use you. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As sure as God is one, God is committed to you. As sure as God is one, is God committed to you. As sure as God is one, God is committed to his people. Listen to this word. Commitment. Let's pray. God, we are overwhelmed, God, by your love. God, we are overwhelmed by your grace. God, we are overwhelmed that you would give up and lay down your life of your own accord for us. That we might be your people, that we might be your children, God. That you would love us as your sheep and you would represent us and go before us, God. And you are our shepherd. God, thank you that for every promise in your word, that you promise to guide us and to lead us and protect us, God. That nothing can snatch us, God, out of your hand. God, may we respond to this. God, may we respond by surrendering our all. May we respond, God, by following you wherever you lead us. God, may we be so overwhelmed with who you are to us, God, that we will surrender. God, forgive us for those times we forget. Forgive us, God, for those times where we don't see the magnitude of your grace. God, we are excited that this week, God, we get to go out and be your people. We get to go out and, God, be your sheep. 
So God, give us a sense of belonging, sense, give us a sense of the gravity to what that means this week as we go about our days. May we proclaim who you are and what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.